if you have a Bible, would you open to the book of Nehemiah? The book of Nehemiah. We will be in this book for about eight or nine weeks, um, spanning through Easter. And then, as I said, post-Easter, we'll have a long time to dive into the book of Romans together. So, uh, But today, we're going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah, and the series is entitled, New Beginnings Together. New Beginnings Together. Together, So I want to read just a few verses of uh, chapter 1. Today we'll just be looking at chapter 1 together. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 4, pray, and then we'll dive in, okay? Nehemiah chapter 1. The Word of God says this. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days, continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I pray that we would hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. I pray that the upshot of our time together would be greater esteem and affection and adoration and joy in Jesus Christ. May we as a people be characterized by a deep and abiding confidence in Christ and in His Word. Father, I pray that You would move by Your Holy Spirit to make us a people pleasing in Your sight. Be with us now and teach us, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. New beginnings. So if I say new beginnings, what comes to mind? It could be a sense of hope. It could be a sense of a renewed purpose or some type of renewed priorities. Kids know new beginnings because when they watch their cartoons, almost every one of them is characterized by some drama in the middle that turns out okay in the end. This sense of something new has begun after something difficult has happened. Business gurus teach on new beginnings. I don't know if you knew this, Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, was fired from the very company he founded. Went on a season of seeking to understand why that would be, what had gone wrong, what had led to this failure, ended up coming back to Apple, of which now is a multi-billion dollar company. Sports heroes succeed on this idea of new beginnings. Famous quote from Michael Jordan, 
I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been entrusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. Jimmy Valvano, he said this, former coach for the Wolfpack who died of cancer. You might know of the Jimmy V Foundation. He says, never give up. Failure and rejection are only the first steps to succeeding. And yes, I just had a Wolfpacker and a Tar Heel agree on something. Is that not, is that not brilliant right there? It just happened. That failure and rejection are the first step to succeeding. What's the point? Struggles, pains, trials, mistakes, shame, disappointments. They are either, they will be to us either unexpected intrusions that crush our soul and leave us paralyzed, or they will be necessary parts of our world and God's plan to build our faith, strengthen our character, and deepen our affections for Jesus. That's why it's born out in the fabric of our world. It's born out in the fabric of our world. I asked one of my children, when you hear the word new beginnings, what do you think? My daughter said, the color green. And I was like, okay. She said, because I think of spring. And what happens at spring is what has been dormant or what has been dead over a season, all of a sudden you see blooms and blossoms. God has built into the fabric of our seasons this idea of a loving of new beginnings. I know pollen is a part of that too, but you get the point. Why do plants grow? They grow when they are pruned or when they're cut back. There's a sense of growth that comes. It's built into the fabric. And what does God say is precious about every day? His mercies are new every morning. The sun rising and the sun setting is a communication that God has given to us everything that we need each and every day. New beginnings. God builds new beginnings. And let's not forget, the church would not be the church were it not for new beginnings. Old made new. Dead brought to life. Broken. Restored. Given hope. Dear friends, we as a church are a people because of new beginnings. And as a people who only exist because Christ specializes in new beginnings, friends, our faith has been tested. Our faith has been tested by everyday life. Our faith has been tested by personal trials. Our faith has been tested by church trials. Our faith has been tested by loss. Our faith has been tested by the unknowns of the future, which we thought would be kind of clearer in the middle of 2020 and now just resigned to where we should be. We have no clue what's coming. Our unity has been threatened in our church. As a global pandemic and a major civil rights moment and extremely contentious election season captured our country, our churches, and beyond. 
And yet through it all, let's make no mistake, God has kept His people. God will keep His people. His promises will not fail. He has kept us clinging to Him. And friends, genuinely, it is time. Genuinely, it is time. As a church, we are poised for a new beginning together. It's time to remember what is essential to Christian living. It's time for our priorities as a people to mirror and to kind of be renewed to be God's priorities for us as a people. And the book of Nehemiah helps us. As what we witness in the book of Nehemiah, it's not a book primarily about building programs. The book of Nehemiah, that's exactly right. The book of Nehemiah, it's a book about new beginnings and how God specializes in new beginnings and how a people will never be held together by the strength of their own might. They will only be held together by their dependence upon a glorious God. And so friends, it's meant to be a new chapter. It's meant to be a new day. And as we dive into this book, Nehemiah, it's meant to be a rallying the troops around God's priorities. So let's look at it together. Because what we begin to see is that new beginnings sometimes come out of a journey of shame, a setting of shame, a setting of pain. But what Nehemiah illustrates are the priorities that are needed for a new beginning together. And that's what we're going to look at in chapter 1 today. New beginnings, though, come out of a setting of shame. And so this is where I want to start. There's a long storied background that leads us to Nehemiah chapter 1. So we got to get caught up. Made a little chart. Hopefully it's helpful. You might not be able to see it, but it's got good information on it. So this is where those of you at home, you might be able to see it clearer. But let's make sure that we know what has got us here to Nehemiah chapter 1. What happened in 960 B.C. was that the first temple was built by David's son, King Solomon. But then in 930, through disobedience, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, northern kingdom capital of Samaria, the southern kingdom capital of Judah is Jerusalem. And then in 722 to 720, Israel's sin was so bad, the rebellion so steep that God delivered on his promise to exile his people if they would not turn from their sin and run to God. So Israel, the northern kingdom, was crushed by the Assyrians in 722 to 720. Ten tribes were exiled. Only two tribes remained, Benjamin and Judah. But then, sadly, Judah continued to sin. And in 605 B.C., the first attack on Babylon, or the first attack by Babylon on Judah came. Some Jews were deported, including Daniel. 597, there was a second attack by Babylon on the people of Judah and on Jerusalem. And in 586, 
The third attack was the most devastating one. Judah was conquered by Babylon. Jerusalem was laid to ruins, the wall destroyed, the temple destroyed, and most Jews exiled. Some escaped, but most were exiled. And then, for 70 long years, there was an exile of the people of God, fulfilling the promise from Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11 that there would be 70 years of exile. Now that 70 years could come from the first attack until the first wave of those in the exile came, or it could be referring to when the first temple was destroyed to when the second temple was rebuilt. Nonetheless, the word of God proves true, can be trusted. 70 years of exile because of the rebellion of the people of God. Now, 539, the Babylonians, they were crushed. Persians came in, and under King Cyrus, they conquered Babylon. And so in 538, a pagan king does the bidding of God and ends up fulfilling these promises, and the people of God now are going back to Jerusalem. They are led by Zerubbabel, yes, that is a fun name to say, and the priest, Yeshua, and the journey could have taken months, maybe even a year. And that's also in the time of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. But what we have then is in 537, the book of Ezra. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are one. They're one book. And so what you have at the beginning of the book of Ezra, chapters 1 to 6, recount this first wave of the exiles coming back to Jerusalem. And then in 516, the temple is finally rebuilt. To those who didn't see the first temple, there's elation. For those who saw the first temple, there are tears. For its glory did not match the glory of the first one. And embedded in the story is this sense of longing for a greater temple, whom we know as Jesus Christ. took 20 years to build that temple. And then in 458 to 433, we have the time period that spans Ezra chapter 7 to chapter 10 and the entire book of Nehemiah. There's the setting. It's a setting of shame. It's not a setting of glory for the people of Israel. It's a setting of disobedience. And that's why we read what we read in Nehemiah chapter 1. Look at the words with me. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it says, now it happened in the month of Kislev. That's the ninth month in the Jewish calendar. That's important, and I'll tell you why in a second. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year As I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. So, Nehemiah is inquiring about the people who were left and who escaped 
He's inquiring about the people who had come back in the first wave of the exiles' return, and he's asking also about the wave of exiles that were brought by Ezra. What you got to understand is that the first wave of exiles in 538 to when Nehemiah comes on the scene in 445, it's almost a century, almost a hundred years of these people, follow me, living in a city whose walls are broken down. And when they first arrived, the temple was destroyed. It was a place of ruin, a place that was meant to be a beacon of light the people of God meant to shine brightly to the nations that God is glorious and that he is sustaining and protecting. They're now amidst the rubble. And the scriptures say, when Hananiah comes and gives the report to Nehemiah, the scriptures say, those people, they're characterized by two things. Great trouble and shame. Shame. Why shame? Shame because they knew they were guilty of sin. In part, they did this. Now what's interesting is the communal nature to the people of God. That even though the people who were there, some of them did not commit the sins that led to the exile, they still owned this sense of corporate guilt. And so, <clears throat> what we see, if you look at the prayer of Nehemiah, in verse 6, he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servant, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. And then he makes a distinction, even I and my father's house have sinned. Generations of our people have sinned. Nehemiah says, I have sinned. That's why they're characterized by shame, because they're guilty of sin. But there's other reasons why they're characterized by shame. Some of them, having not committed the very sins that led to the destruction of Jerusalem, because they might have been born in Babylon or they might have been brought back after the city was already destroyed, they feel the shame that comes, which I should be the people of God, and yet all around me is destruction. I'm supposed to have a different sense of identity. We're supposed to be a beacon. And yet everyone who walks around looks at us and thinks, weak, other, estranged. Shame. Shame is a really interesting thing. It means reproach, disgrace, sense of embarrassment because of sin. Ed Welch, in a beautiful article he wrote, says it's this way. Shame identifies that we are unacceptable, dirty, and disgraced, sent away, distanced from people and God's promises. We notice that life can feel more like death 
We feel unacceptable because of our own sin. We also become unacceptable because of our association with things connected to death, such as weakness or disease and the sins of others. No matter how the sin-death thing gets its hands on us, it brings shame, and shame must receive the appropriate remedy. Every one of us carry shame. We carry a sense of shame because we are sinners. This week, you and I have sinned in some way, shape, or form. We have treasured something more than Christ. We have broken His ways. We have loved ourselves more than we've loved our neighbor. We are sinners. And what comes is shame. In that moment, it happens. But some of us also carry a shame because of sin done to us. A sense of shame of being told that you're worthless or you're unacceptable, or you're not wanted. It's a shame that makes you feel distance. It's what the abused individual feels. Sense of garbage, or throwaway, or dirty. Imagine what the leper felt like. In the Israelite community, they had to be estranged. They had to go outside the camp. There was this sense of otherness. There was a sense of removal that shame brings. And this is what the people of Israel are feeling, both for their own sin, but also for the sin of others done to them, or just the sin in the world causing disease and affliction. For those of you who have experienced a sense of someone else sinning against you, accusation or abuse, I just want you to know that Jesus cares. And you need a remedy for shame. Right here on the pages of this Old Testament book leaps a God who cares and who made himself known in Jesus Christ. You know there was a woman in the New Testament who was bleeding profusely? And it was just a sense of Massive estrangement, a sense of just unclean, unclean. And you know what she said I'm going to do with that shame? She said, if I can just get near to Jesus and touch the hem of his garment, I can be healed. Friends, this is the remedy for shame. The remedy for shame is when shame says be distant, God says come near. When shame says you're dirty, God says come and touch me, I will make you clean. And what do we see on these pages right here when Nehemiah hears that his people are covered in shame? They are experiencing deep trouble. Where does Nehemiah go? The whole rest of the chapter is a prayer. He knows where to go. There's only one remedy for shame. And may I help you not carry around. You were never meant to carry shame. It's too great of a burden for you to bear. What do you do with shame when it's your sin that has caused it? You go near to the throne of grace and you repent. But do not carry it along day by day and say, that's how I'm identified. That's who I am. That's light from the pit of hell. You are a child of God by faith in God and you give it to Him. You give it to Him. Don't let shame be your identity. Whether it's your own personal sin or sin done to you, 
You are not dirty. You are not throwaway. You are not trash. You are not meant to be distant. The lie is, if I've been abused or if I've been hurt, then I should stay away. I should not share my story. But no, it's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. We should come forth. And the church, the church of all places, should be a place that knows how to relate together in the midst of shame. Because, guess what? Our story is a story of shame. The setting for Nehemiah is the setting of our life. It's what has made us a church. We're a shameful people. We are a sinful people. And yet we have found a Savior who drew near to us when we could not draw near to Him. He saved us and made us new. There needs to be some new life in this church and in our hearts and in our city that is centered around a people who know they should be discarded and yet have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Dear friends, Nehemiah, when he saw this setting and all the pain that they were experiencing, look at what verse 4 says. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Dear friends, Dear friends, listen to what we as a church need to hear. Out of a setting of shame comes new beginnings. New beginnings together as a people walking forward. And if we are about new beginnings, new beginnings, we will be a people that draw near to Christ and to each other. Grudges distance, the gospel moves us near. Harbored anger pushes away. Our Savior pushes us near to one another. What do new beginnings do? New beginnings begin with a sense of renewed priorities. Renewed priorities. And this is what Nehemiah is doing. He is on his face. He is weeping. And now he is asking God to do something here in his life that helps him know how to walk forward in a new way. How can I help out here? How can I be a part of the solution? It means beginning prostrate before the Lord. And what I want you to notice first is if we're going to be a church of new beginnings, our priorities need to be God's priorities. And we need to have a renewed sense of what those priorities are for us as a church. And it begins with a word I totally made up. God-soakedness. I can't imagine how many times I tried to type that in and autocorrect tried to hijack it. I'm just like, stop it. I know it's not a word, but we're going with it. God-soakedness. That's the first thing that you see here. I want you just to look at this prayer. First of all, a prayer is what? It's not talking to self, it's talking to God. So what we get right here is a journal entry from Nehemiah. And Nehemiah begins to write down his prayers. And as he does, look at how filled with God it is. Look at verse 4. It says, O Lord, God of heaven. Verse 5, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He says, let your ear, O God, be attentive to my 
eye and your eyes open to hear my prayer. Look further down, right at the end of verse 6. He says, the people have sinned. We have sinned against you, God. Our sins are against God. Look at verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you can say it with me just for participation. We've very corruptly against you. That's right. God was at the center of what he was saying. And then when they broke the commandments, who is the commander? It says, you commanded your servant Moses. And then where does he go? He goes to the word of God in Deuteronomy. Because God is all over his mind. And he's got a confidence in God and his word. And you know why Nehemiah? is meant to be God-soaked because God is God-soaked. When Nehemiah quotes God's Word, what's most important to God is found at the end of verse 9. Look at verse 9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I, this is God speaking, I will gather them and bring them to a place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. God knows the only solution for our guilt, shame, pain, struggle to love, struggle to endure, is that God is central in our affections. And this prayer from Nehemiah is such a strong example. Look at verse 11. He says, Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive. It is a sense of desperation. I want to be soaked in God. The image that comes to my mind is, when my kids were younger, they wanted to run outside when it was pouring the rain. Because, you know, we, didn't get to go to, we don't get to go to a pool all the time, so why not just run out in the rain? Sometimes they would come down having put their swimsuits on and ask, can we go outside? Other times, there wasn't any need for swimsuits. You just run out in the rain in your clothes and we'll deal with the aftermath, you know? It's like there was this sense of loving that rain pouring over them. That's why we love swimming pools. If you love to swim, you know, you just love to be in and soaked in and covered in that water. I don't know if you've noticed, Raleigh has moved to next to Seattle because it's been raining like we're on Seattle's weather system. It is so soppy and so wet, and when I walk outside, yesterday I walk outside, and literally when I put my foot in the ground, it's like the ground begins to form a mold around my shoe because the ground is so saturated. And I just began to think, like when you are soaked in Christ, everywhere you go leaves an imprint of that that you love. And that's what has happened when our hearts are soaked in Christ, when Nehemiah's heart is soaked in Christ, when the devastation comes, when the pain comes, he, he knows there's no other place to go than to bow my heart to the God of the universe and cry out to Him because He's my only hope. God's soakedness is what is meant to be characterizing us as a people of God. If we're thinking about new beginnings together, that's the first priority, that we treasure Christ above all, that we are soaked in Christ. Jonathan Edwards, when he was asked to kind of give an account of when do you know it's the real Spirit of God at work in these revivals, and when do you know it's not just somebody kind of manifests something and makes something up, his first statement of a right and true spirit is this. 
He said, convince your people of Christ and lead them to Christ. Confirm their minds in the belief of the history of Christ as he appeared in the flesh and that he is the Son of God and was sent of God to save sinners, but he is the only Savior and that we all stand in great need of him. And here's what he says. If he seems, if God seems, to work in them higher and more honorable thoughts of Jesus than they used to have, and to incline their affections more to him, it is a sure sign of a right and true spirit. Let me summarize it for you. You know that we are a people soaked in God, treasuring Christ, when what happens is God gives us a gift that inclines our hearts more to Jesus. There are greater affections for Jesus as we go through life. There is an esteem for Jesus above everything else. How do we get there? It has to do with what we sing. Do we sing about the glories of Jesus? Is Jesus the center of our counsel to one another? Is His Word the foundation of our actions? Is His finished work not our need to do more, the foundation of our sermons and how we encourage one another? This is a first importance that the people of God are soaked in God and treasure Christ, esteeming Him above all. But new beginnings, new beginnings begin with renewed priorities. It's God-soakedness. But the other one you see here is a people of prayer. New beginnings together for treasuring Christ church means that we too are God-soaked. We want to be out in the rain of His Word and out in the rain of His grace and want to be near to Him. That's what shameful people do when they've collided with Christ. They draw near to Christ not pull away. He invites us to touch Him. And we do that in prayer. We do that in prayer. Prayer is not just an obligation of something to do. It's an invitation. People of God, get near to me. It's an invitation that says the deepest longings of your heart, the greatest problems in your soul, I invite you to find satisfaction in me. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Rest for your soul. This happens when we stop and we bow our hearts at the feet of King Jesus and say, I need you. I need you. And this is what you see with Nehemiah, isn't it? As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continue fasted and praying before the God of heaven. Let me just fast forward just a little bit in this storyline that we'll get to next week. Nehemiah is going to go to the king, and he's going to ask for permission to be sent with materials to go and to help rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. Do you know how long? It took him from hearing the words that Jerusalem and the people of Israel were in trouble and devastating shame to when he finally goes to appeal to the king. Four months. Four months. Goes from November to about March or April. What was he doing? Chapter 1. What was he doing? I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That's what he was doing. 
It wasn't just a quick prayer that, and then he moves on. It was this sense of, I don't need Jesus just every now and then. I need my God every day. I need him. The people of God need to be convinced that they need God. Convinced that Christ is our only hope. And just in case you're wondering, like, I'm throwing Jesus a lot in here in Nehemiah, right? Like, I'm throwing him in there, and you don't see his name at all in chapter 1. I don't know if you notice that or not. How in the world can I talk about Christ as we're going through the Old Testament? Because I'm going to keep doing it. It's because every page of this precious book is about Jesus. Every page. When Jesus reveals himself, it says he explains from the law, the prophets, and the writings. He explains from the Old Testament about himself. There are some pages that are so explicit that every time it talks about our great God, it's showing us about our great Savior. There are times when it talks about a Messiah, which is talking about our great Savior Jesus. But know this, even the book of Nehemiah is Chapter 1 is not just sitting on an island. It's a part of a book. And at the end of the book, I'll just give you the punchline. The people of God are still in need of some Savior. The book, in and of its nature, is pointing the people who are reading it that, oh, I wish the Messiah would come because not even Nehemiah and all of his greatness could save this wretched people. So this is where I get Jesus. The book as a whole points to the people needing Jesus. So I'm just going to be using it interchangeably. I hope you're okay with that because I think that's how we should preach. Jesus should be a part of everything. So the people of God need to be soaked in God and the people of God need to be a prayerful people. Paul Miller says this, prayer is asking God to incarnate, that is come near, to get dirty in your life. Yes, the eternal God scrubs floors. For sure, we know he washes feet. So take Jesus at his word. Ask him. Tell him what you want. Get dirty. Write out your prayer requests. Don't mindlessly drift through life on the American narcotic of busyness. If you try to seize the day, the day will eventually break you. Amen. Seize the corner of his garment and don't let go. Until he blesses you. He will reshape the day. This is what we mean. New beginnings together begin with a desperate people holding on to the garment of Christ and saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. Four months of pleading and planning and thinking about how this should go. Desperate. Holding on to Christ. A praying church is a hopeful church. A praying church is an active church that loves and asks God to move. A praying church is a bold church. And God is inviting us to be a praying church. He's also saying that new beginnings come with renewed priorities, and part of those priorities must be confession and repentance. 
So it's not only a people soaked in God, and it's not only a people that are characterized by prayer, but a people who are characterized by regular confession and repentance. Look at what Nehemiah prays. He begins with praise, P-R-A-I-S-E. Verse 5, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servant, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. This has to be a part of our prayer lives. It has to be a part of our life with God. That we genuinely confess. Friends, we can't fix ourselves. Shame tells us to hide. Christ tells us to come to him. May we hide no more. May we come to him. Desperate, asking for forgiveness. The idea that you can carry your shame, that hiding somehow solves your sin problem, is works righteousness. It is, I can fix this. But what brought you into the family of God is what keeps you in the family of God. You can't fix this. And yet Nehemiah knows that he brings all of his mess and he lays it there. And not just his mess, but he owns generations and generations of sin. Not necessarily as his own, but some that he must acknowledge. Be grieved over. And so, this is where the people of God, they need to talk about sin. In a book I'm reading called The Gospel-Driven Ministry, the author says this, People cannot be saved if you never talk about sin. And Christ is not the satisfier of our desires before he is the satisfier of God's wrath. Friends, if we don't talk about sin and our need for sin, then the only thing that gets, looks, tries to look better in our story is us. But if we talk about sin and how much we need Christ and how great He is, He begins to increase. He begins to look beautiful. And lost people will finally hear that they're not perfect and they don't have everything in themselves which the enlightenment has brought us and we just keep fanning into flame. That humanity is good. And we can solve it all by human reason. It's garbage. The Bible says no way, no how. We must talk about sin. And yes, he is the satisfier of desires, but he is the satisfier of God's wrath against sin. That's what makes Jesus beautiful. So friends, may we be people, people who confess, confess our sin. And finally, for now, because we'll pick this up next week with other priorities that we see in the book of Nehemiah, the final one is confidence in God's word. Confidence in God's Word. 
If we're going to have new beginnings, our priorities must be a confidence in God's word. Look at verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're dispersed, be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. He's quoting here from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30 is where he goes when he prays in verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. What you see here is Nehemiah is so confident in God's word, so confident that the promises given by God are his, that he praised them. He praised them. And so when the word says, you're outcasts in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will gather you, what does that mean? It means no matter how far they were scattered, God is a God of restoration, a God of bringing together, a God who delivers on his promises. And so Nehemiah says for us to have anywhere to go together, for him to begin this journey, there's a confidence that I just, I hold God to his promises and I believe him. And so dear friends, we as a people must be a people of the book, a people characterized by the scriptures. I was talking to a friend the other day, and he just said something that was such an encouragement to me. He says, when I was in seminary, I used to read scripture for scripture, which meant I used to study the Bible for all the knowledge I could get. I used to read scripture just so I could know more and know more. He says, now I read scripture to commune with Jesus. He actually said, I'm starting to refuse to read any book, secular or religious, without my aim being, how can I commune with Jesus? What's embedded in that moment is this idea that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge can make us proud unless we submit that knowledge to the living God. So when Nehemiah takes the Word of God and prays it, it's just a posture of humility already. It's not a sword to be wielded to one-up your neighbor. It's something, it's a lifeline for the people of God that fills our prayers and reminds us in our lowest moments that God keeps His Word and His promises are true. This is what Nehemiah is doing. The Word of God is not just an intellectual book of something to know. It is essential for him to commune with the living God and it's a part of his prayers. So friends, I invite us all I invite us all to consider new beginnings together. A new chapter, so to speak, for us as Treasuring Christ Church. Not just for you as an individual, but for us together. And for that to happen, God's priorities must be ours. We must acknowledge the setting of our own personal and corporate shame. And we must go to the hem of His garment and touch Him. Be a God-soaked people, a people who treasure Christ, a people who pray, a people who are confident in God's word, confessing our sin, repenting, and receiving the forgiveness that only he can give. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I love you and I thank you. And I just ask, I ask that you would draw near to us in this moment. I pray, Father, that you would 
cause our hearts to be still. Right now, Father, I ask that there would be a sense of reflection in this moment where you would press one of these priorities upon our hearts. That this would not just be a list of things to do. This would be a reminder that you have done everything for us. You are a mighty rushing river supplying in us all that we need. I pray for anyone who has never heard of Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone who has never surrendered their life to Christ, that today they would maybe for the first time understand the shame that they're carrying around and they realize the devastation of the hiding and the difficulty of the pain that they are bearing and that, Father, they would in this moment, they would acknowledge their own personal sin. They would confess it to you, the living God, because they would realize for the first time For the first time, I pray, God, that you would awaken hearts and you would enlighten eyes. You would cause dead hearts to leap for Jesus because they acknowledge that they are sinners, but that you are a great Savior. Father, please save in this moment, I pray. Turn people who are trying to solve their own sin problem, turn them to repentance. Bring great faith and may there be healing that comes to their soul. Father, right now, I pray that you would just meet us in this one minute or so of just reflection. You would have your way in the hearts of your people. Let's reflect for a moment on what God, by His Spirit, is teaching us. Father, in this moment, we ask that you would meet us. The words of these songs, this song would be our prayer. Father, there would be healing that happens in our hearts. There would be hope that abounds in our soul. There would be unity that draws us together. And there would be love that so abounds more and more we may be able to discern what is excellent and be found blameless on the last day, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes only through Jesus Christ. May our lives be to your praise and honor and glory. And we pray this in Christ's name.